This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Bank of America's Brian Moynihan says people in the U.S. are doing pretty well right now. Everything's kind of normalized for the U.S. consumer and how they're spending money. They are in very good shape. They have money in their accounts. They're employed and the wages are growing. The Fed's recent dovish tone and the market reaction surprises Rick Reeder of BlackRock. I don't think Chair Powell meant to be that aggressive about starting to cut this quickly. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer on the new financial deal with Switzerland. Could be a template for the kind of deals that the UK does with other countries going forward. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. And the economy, the U.S. economy, is looking pretty good by many accounts right now, isn't it, as we head into the new year? Yeah, not perfect, but pretty good. And it's interesting, Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America, well, he was among those who really stuck to his conviction throughout this year from the very beginning of 2023 about a rosy scenario for this year. And Bloomberg's David Weston asked Moynihan where we stand as we head into 2024 and how he got it right with his soft landing call for this year. There are unexpected events in every year, you know, and so whether it was the regional banking crisis early on in, in the year or whether it was another, you know, the Hamas uh, attack on Israel on October 7th, whether it was escalation and continuation of Ukraine, whether it's the tensions in China, these are all things that happen and they go on all the time. But what we look at is what goes on in our core customer base and we try to talk about what is going on as opposed to what could go on and plan for what could go on. And, you know, that's been relatively strong and our team, you know, the spending continues even today at about 4 to 5% over last year, half the growth rate of 22 to 21, showing the consumer has slowed down, consistent with inflation getting under control, consistent with uh, you know, the Fed using the rate structure to choke off some of the activity, and it's happened. But overall, it's been a decent year, and the economy's grown, unemployment stayed low, and the bank's done very well. Let's talk about the consumer. Uh, you are the largest consumer banking operation in the country. Uh, we are in the middle, toward, toward the end now, the holiday season. What are you seeing there? I knew until now it was holding up pretty well. Where is it right now, the consumer, as of today? Sure. So if you looked at it, November of 23 over November of 22, and this is across about three or $400 billion a month of activity, customers spending money out of their accounts, that was up about 4.5%. And again, that's about half the rate it was growing at last year at this time versus the year prior. And that's because the overall activity is slowing down. What's been interesting is it's broadened out to all things. There were these periodic things since the pandemic. First, people hold up and bought stuff for their house. Then they started to go out and travel some, then they went to restaurants, then they had another set of travel, different kind of travel, international travel, and then they got to concerts and things. That's all through the system. And now you see it spending kind of evenly across. Retail stores are doing fine. Online sales are strong. You know, they're all up, you know, 2 3% flattish, 2 4%, depending on what it is. So everything's kind of normalized for the U.S. consumer and how they're spending money. They are in very good shape. They have money in their accounts. They're employed, and the wages are growing. It doesn't mean inflation didn't affect certain parts of the, of the uh, American public hard, but in general, 
when the unemployment rate's still in the mid threes to mid to upper threes, that is a very strong place for the consumer, but it has slowed down. You say they're in good shape. That's what I was going to ask you. They're spending money. Can they afford it? What are you seeing in terms of their bank balances? I believe those have come down some. Yeah. How fast are they coming down? So it's, it's a little bit of a, two different types of customers. For consumers that had a lot of excess cash, of course, when the rate they could get on that cash went from 25 basis points to 5% plus, guess what it did? It moved the market. So the very upper balances of consumer and our wealth management customers move the market. But if you look at the consumers that the accounts are more the money coming in and out, they're still sitting with multiples of what they had pre-pandemic. So a cohort of consumers that had between two and $5,000 in their accounts pre-pandemic average about 32, 3,400. They're now still sitting with about 13,000 accounts. It has come down from a peak of 13,400 down to about 12,800. So it's come down a bit, but still much higher than it was before. And that's due to all the stimulus and stuff and then you know, holding on to that. Where they go next is going to be more interesting question. They've slowed down their spending because things got more expensive. They slowed down their spending because they got worried a little bit worried about their job. They slowed down their spending because the rates on car loans or all the things uh, became more expensive. But they're still spending more than they did last year. And that that's that's a decent setup for a soft landing. Are you seeing any softness in, in consumer credit? I mean, are you seeing balances go up? Delinquencies yeah. go up? Balances have gone up on credit cards back to where they were pre-pandemic for us and the industry. And people are like, oh my gosh, and they're up above that even now. But if you adjusted for the size of the economy, they're actually still down. And so the consumer capacity bar is strong. Mortgage, mortgages are all locked in at low rates. That The best asset for a lot of households is actually their low interest cost liability. It's it's mixing two different things on the balance sheet. But the reality is, is a 3% mortgage is an asset for people right now because it means their payments haven't moved. So that's good news. The home equity borrowings are down for us from $30 billion to $20-some billion. That means that they're not using that equity in their house and there's more equity in their house. On the credit cards, the delinquencies are really consistent with the 19. And everybody says, well, it's back to 19. 19 was one of the best credit years in the company's history and the industry's uh, credit history. So that's a very strong place. Um, and so we feel good about consumer credit. And as long as the employment levels stay there, it's a little hard to believe that you'd have it. Now, lower FICO scores, you hear people talk about a little more noise, but ge the general consumer is basically a prime borrower and, and they're doing fine. What about the commercial side? Uh, you're very big in middle market, small and medium-sized enterprises. Is there low demand? What's the sentiment there? If you think about the consumer, we keep growing customers, keep growing households, keep growing this company. If you think about on the commercial, we keep growing customers, you know, more, more logos, as our teammates call it, you know, companies that we do business with, a record number this year. The thing about it is they're not using the lines as much. So the loan balance growth on the commercial side has been a little bit sluggish, a little bit flattish. Looks like it'll bounce around in low single digits this quarter. Now, why is that happening? Line usage before the pandemic for middle market clients was 40%, dropped to 30%, got back up to 36%, and it fell a couple hundred basis points. Why would companies borrow less at this point? They're worried about final demand. It's also a lot more expensive. So the Fed is having the impact, which is a loan that was like 3% to 4% is now 7 to 8%. You know, people think about using it. So the line uses is down, meaning that they're not being as aggressive buying equipment or hiring people or extending inventories, mostly because they're, they're worried about the economy slowing down. And when we say a soft landing, it doesn't mean the economy goes into recession. It says no, but what we're, what our team is saying, Candace Browning, Platinum Research Team, is that we're slowing from almost a you know, 4 to 5% growth rate to 1% growth rate is still a major slowdown, and the business community is, is wrestling with that right now, trying to get that balance right. Uh, one of the big surprises this year came toward the end of the year with the Fed uh, decision and then the news conference with Jay Powell that really signaled, at least to most of us, yeah, they're really seriously considering rate cuts. It looks like they're coming next year. Were you surprised, and why do you think they did it? Let's talk about what our economists tell me, and if we could feed it in. We have a, the number one research team in the business, and Candace and the team do a great job. They're basically, they just shifted, um, and they 
they moved to more rate cuts in 24. But the real key was what do they see in the economy? And they basically have moved from a half a percent growth rate annualized for the first three quarters of next year up above 1%. So they've, they've softened their soft landing, let's just say that. And by doing that, they've said when the Fed is seeing inflation slow as fast as it is, they basically think we get down to low twos in inflation by the year and next year, 24, and, and it carries into 25. The Fed needs to bring the rate structure down. They're saying basically 200 basis points of rate cuts, 100 next year and 125, which still leaves you at three and a quarter, three and a half. Now, the last time we were fundamentally at that rate structure was almost it was 18 years ago by the time we get there. So we've had a long stretch of very low rates, except for what happened very recently. And so that fueled a lot of activity. And now the rate structure can be fundamentally higher. It's more structurally sound. And the Fed is, pivot, is it's not really a pivot to say we got to normalize this because we're seeing the economy and the inflation come in. Not done yet, but all indications are doing there. And everything we can see that consumer spending is consistent with a 2% inflation economy. That level of spending growth in our customers was where it was in 17, 18, 19, when the Fed raised rates to bring the economy back in sync. Uh, your trading desk has done particularly well this year. Give us a sense of where it is right now. Are you going to finish the year as strongly as you have been going this quarter so far? Well, you can, from your lips to their ears, <laughs> no, they're doing fine. We said that they'd be up uh, up year over year, which is kind of counter to the trend in the market. They, Jimmy DeMar and the team have done a great job. And what's interesting, it's it's rounded out, and it's fixed income, it's equities, and it's much more consistent. They've, I, I'm not quite sure it's exactly true, but they've basically made money every single trading day this year. Mm -hmm. And and so there's been volatility, there's been news, there's been this, and they've, and that's because they have a balance in the business in a way that goes through. We increased the size of the of the business three or four years ago under Tom Montag's leadership and Jimmy's leadership, and that that's uh, borne fruit. And they are keep gaining market share, and they're doing a great job. So I'm glad you raised that because three or four years ago, I was here with you at Bank of America, and you said, you know what, you're going to have to devote more capital, more people into that business. You did it. You seem to be having success. Going forward, is there yet more capital that you're going to allocate into trading? Yeah, as, as long as they can get the returns. You know, at the end of the day, our, our return on equities, you know, 15% as a company. This business, because all the regulations and the capital is a little lower than that, but it's well above our cost of capital. As long as they can keep deploying, we'll keep pushing capital because it's a great business and great format, and we're gaining market share, honestly, across the world. And it's a global business, so it can access much deeper client base. The team's done a great job, so they'll keep getting more commitments right. consistent with them being able to get the returns on them. One last one, Brian. Are you concerned at all that the market's maybe overreacting to what they heard from Chair Powell? I, th I think he's got this challenge that, you know, he, he was, you know, the Fed in their own mission was late to cutting off inflation. Now he's been careful not to be late to stop cutting off inflation. And the market's going to ebb and flow. But I, I think people have to be a little careful. This is trading talk. This is, you know, the tenure moving around between, you know, 390 and 450 and 470. It's not the real economy. The real economy is still heavily impacted by the overall rate level. It's very restrictive and it's still coming through the system. Against that, we still have a lot of stimulus coming through the system. Yeah. You know, the Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act, the IRA, those are all still coming through the system. So that's the tug of war he's up against. But overall, it, it, we believe he's engineered a soft landing through the interest rate environment. And you've been listening to Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America with Bloomberg's David Weston. And they spoke on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, Rick Reeder of BlackRock's move to expand in the nearly $8 trillion ETF business. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, it's been quite a year for stocks and for the U.S. economy, as we've been talking about. Yeah, and it's interesting, all the shifts in financial markets that have big investors 
launching a lot of new products to try to take advantage of the fluid situation as they see it. And among them, Rick Reeder, Senior Managing Director and CIO of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. That's right. He's expanding his footprint in the $7.8 trillion ETF industry with the launch of his second fund. It's called the BlackRock Total Return ETF and trades under the ticker BRTR. And Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld, Scarlett Fu, and Eric Balchunas caught up with Reader, uh, asked him all about it. And he also told them he found the December Fed pivot kind of shocking. Check this out. It was wild. I mean, the last couple of weeks have been uh, have been pretty incredible. I, so, so the Powell, I mean, I thought what was interesting, most interesting about Powell is there was no pushback on financial conditions easing, and which was pretty stark contrast to where they were a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, or no reference to... We still are fighting inflation aggressively. I mean, I, I was pretty surprised by it. But then, you know, markets took it dovishly, and in, including pricing in that the Fed would start cutting in March, which I still think is early. But then I thought the one that was significant is John Williams coming out. That was unscheduled and coming out and saying that the markets are being a bit presumptuous. But I don't think Chair Powell meant to be that aggressive about starting to cut this quickly. Let's wrap this into the reason we do have you, which, of course, is uh, you launching your second ETF. Of course, uh, you've managed fixed income for quite a long time, but you're relatively new to the ETF wrapper. And last week, you launched the BlackRock Total Return ETF. Of course, you manage total return strategies in mutual funds. And when I think of total return, I really think of a go-anywhere type of strategy. And against that backdrop that you just described uh, with the Fed, if you can go anywhere in the fixed income market right now, where's the most opportunity? So, I mean, the one thing about total return, I mean, we're doing it, uh, quite frankly, because we think the demand in this wrapper and this type of wrapper for many that are using models, and quite frankly, after a year like this, where people are looking at a balanced equities, total return makes a lot of sense. So the total return tends to be, we still model it to the aggregate index, but we're trying to outperform the index. So what do you do today? Listen, some of the credit sectors make still make sense today. Both the investment grade market, we think, makes sense. A bit of high yield, we think, makes sense today. And, uh, and agency mortgages that, um, you know, where we think there's some real value today to take advantage of. Where we don't think there's a lot of value is what we just talked about, the front end of the yield curve getting ahead of the Fed, presumably, that we've started to pull back on and we're underweight there. But gosh, we still think the spread sectors, you can create a bit more income than the index. And that's where we think there's the best value today. Rick, we recently caught up with JP Morgan Asset Management's Brian Leake, who, of course, is the global head of ETF solutions there. And he discussed the room that's available to grow in active fixed income ETFs. Take a listen. You could see the ETF industry double from kind of seven to 14, 15 trillion dollars. And I think active could be 10 to 20 percent of that. So there's your 1.5 to 3 trillion dollars in active ETFs. Big starter there is on the fixed income side. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing that I hear from investors is they're just underwhelmed with how fixed income indexes are constructed. Um, a fixed income index is going to weight the heaviest debtor as the biggest component. And that's not how I or you probably think of your fixed income exposure in your portfolios. And so you can use active management to correct for some of those things. Rick, I want to get your thoughts on how big you think this market can get now that the Fed pivot is happening. You know, active management fixed income generally outperforms. I, I've seen numbers from Morningstar that show that, uh, that something like 80, 85 percent of managers outperform in fixed income. The reason why is you get in fixed income, there's 68,000 securities. It's pretty extraordinary versus the S&P 500. There are so many unique things you could take advantage of in the fixed income market. Your ability to build income and then manage your beta in fixed income is, is one of the, what I think, one of the key 
uh, tools and objectives you can create, and uh, which I think I think makes a lot of sense over time. So I think active active fixed income is going to grow quite a bit. I mean, the growth of the mutual fund industry and fixed income has been huge. And you know, we launched as you said, we launched our Bink ETF back in May, and we're pretty uh, it's pretty impressed with how fast it's growing. And it's you know that's a fund or an ETF where you can put a lot of income into it. We you know we were running seven percent with a drop in rates. We're still running mid to high sixes which is super attractive. And you know, one thing about fixed income, it's really hard for the average investor to find unique commercial mortgage securities, unique CLO securities. It tends to be a more opaque market. And so the ability to do that, create a lot of yield without a lot of volatility is something that people crave from the uh, both retail, model-driven, and institutional. And Rick, earlier you mentioned the short end of the curve and um, dura low duration. Um, I want to get your take on TLT. This fascinated us all year. Um, we had $20 billion poured into it, and it kept going down and down. I think it lost 18%. People kept going in and in. It finally worked about in the past month. What do you do now? Um, just curious if you like the long end of the curve and TLT in particular and what you made of this year and all the flows that, w that went into it. You've highlighted what I think is it's truly been the most curious thing. The, the demand, and like you say, I mean, the money was coming in, the markets were going were going down, and 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 the money kept coming in. It was it was really curious. Listen, I don't think the long end of the yield curve today is very attractive. If you talk about a four percent long bond, uh, when you can get more than that in the front, and you don't have to take the uh, the the duration risk of being in the back end of the curve. The thing that's pretty incredible, if you go back in history and think about a four percent long bond, that's not that attractive. You think about what normal term premium is. Uh, you think, you know, relative to history, that's not that attractive at all. It's where, the, where it's really attractive. I said I didn't like the very front end. I don't like the very long end. It means I like the middle. And, I, you know, I really like the belly of the yield curve where you get, that's the fulcrum point for when the, the Fed starts easing. That's where the forwards are really attractive. And, that, and that's where you can create a lot of return and certainly on a risk-adjusted basis. Like you say, the demand that's come in on the back end of the yield curve has been one of the most curious things that I've seen. Now, one thing that is that it certainly is happening, pension funds that have done well in their equities can now lock in these yields. So there's some of that that's going on, but the sheer size of that demand has been, has been truly, uh, truly eye-popping. Okay, guys, write that down. It's the belly is where you want to be uh, when we finally get to that pivot point. But, Rick, I want to talk a little bit more about you because, okay, you launched Bink uh, back in May, I believe it was. That was very exciting for the ETF industry. Now you're out with uh, your total return ETF. Again, like I mentioned, a strategy that you're very familiar with, have been managing in a mutual fund wrapper. Would you ever consider converting some of your mutual fund strategies just into ETF? So listen, I mean, they're different, they're different products and different wrappers. I mean, one thing in a mutual fund is I do a lot of things. We're able to do a lot of things around sort of bespoke financing. I do a lot of hedging in the mutual funds that allows me to keep our volatility relative to our, relative to our risk, relative to our return at a reasonable level. So I think, listen, I think the mutual fund industry is going to survive and live, live on for years. And, you know, you can run a really, really effective strategy in mutual funds. You know, we, we run a fund called uh, SIO, which is our strategic income fund, that is, allows us to create, I mean, we've created almost double the return of the ag at half the volatility for years and years. And it's because I can use so many tools to do it. But listen, I think, I think people really like the facility 
of using ETFs, put them into models, use them for tax strategies. So my sense is mm. the growth will, will clearly happen in ETF form, but I don't think uh, I don't think the mutual fund industry is going away anytime soon. And quite frankly, I find it super effective to uh, to manage uh, to manage portfolios with today. You know, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about how in the ETF world there are definitely natives and then there are tourists. Um, but increasingly, the people uh, with ETFs are now heavyweights in the bond world, right? So, Rick. What do you notice, what do you observe as a tourist that the natives don't necessarily appreciate? You know, you get a sense for how do you run the style a little bit differently. In the, in the ETF for total return, for, the, for, the, uh, for BlackRock total return ETF, for bank, you know, I'm using more products that are more transparent so that people can replicate them that like to put them into models. But, uh, but you know, to keep, you know, one of the things we're doing, keep the yield up keep the diversification up in uh, in the ETF and do it similar to what you would do in a mutual fund but you know there's you know people desire all types of forms to uh, to invest and this is this one I think is going to continue to grow Rick Reeder senior managing director and CIO of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock with Bloomberg Scarlett Fu, Katie Greifeld and Eric Belchunas on Bloomberg ETF IQ And coming up UK Chancellor of the Exchequer on a groundbreaking new financial deal between the UK and Switzerland. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And the UK and Switzerland, well, they've just signed a very important deal. It essentially recognizes each other's laws and regulations in financial services. And the deal definitely is seen as groundbreaking. And it may be especially crucial for the UK after it abandoned the European Union in Brexit. That was back in January 2020, right? Just before the pandemic. Right. And uh, Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz snagged an interview with a UK Chancellor of the Exchequer to ask him what the deal means and what happens next. And here's Lisa with Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. I am curious. There's just this agreement that you just came to. Can you explain why it was so important to come to this financial agreement between Switzerland and the United Kingdom? This is a very groundbreaking agreement. It's never happened anywhere in the world before. And it links two of Europe's largest financial centres, the City of London and Zurich. Uh, and instead of doing what previous trade deals and mutual recognition deals do, which is uh, try to align legal frameworks, what we're doing here is we're saying that in the UK we will uh, allow Swiss companies to operate uh, following Swiss regulatory structures and rules. And in Switzerland, they will allow British based companies to operate following UK rules and regulations without the need for both countries to align their legal frameworks. And so in terms of the wholesale insurance market, um, asset management, banking, uh, this is a really significant deal, but also could be uh, a template for the kind of deals that the UK does with other countries going forward. That's exactly where I was going to go. Chancellor, who's next? What other country? 
Well, we're open to discussions with anyone. Um, what I would say is it was much easier to do this deal with Switzerland because uh, there's a lot of trust between Switzerland and the UK. We've been friends for a very long time and there's a lot of confidence in each other's legal systems and regulatory structures. Um, but we're open to this kind of discussion with any countries uh, all over the world. Anything that boosts choice and competition whilst respecting uh, our sovereignty and our ability to make our own rules and regulations is something we're happy to talk. Chancellor, how important is this, given the fact that there have been discussions about financial hubs moving to Paris or moving to uh, Frankfurt or Berlin? How much is it important to get some of these connections in order to boost tax revenue and keep the banking sector in the United Kingdom? Well, we've had a lot of discussion uh, post-Brexit of um, people, uh, banks, uh, operations potentially moving out of London. But it hasn't materialized on anything like the scale that people predicted. London has shown itself to be very resilient. And if you look at uh, what's happened in the last year, uh, what we've done in the UK is we've shown we're going to be hungry to keep all that business that's come to London. We are uh, very committed to financial services in the UK. Uh, we passed the Financial Services and Markets Act. Uh, we are changing the rules uh, for prospectuses and for all sorts of the, the rules around IPOs to make uh, the London Stock Exchange more competitive. We've got the Mansion House reforms, which is going to unlock a lot of capital into growth businesses from uh, pension funds. So we are really motoring in the UK. We're hungry to attract business all around the world. And this deal with Switzerland is just another step in that direction. How much are you uh, looking to some of these revenues, though, to be able to enact tax cuts? You were talking about uh, additional tax cuts coming down the pike. Are you still planning that? And specifically, where are you planning to have those tax cuts? Is it going to be with the savings or uh, property, other areas? Well, Rishi Sunak and I have said that uh, we would like to cut the tax burden uh, more if we're able to do so. But um, we won't be in a position uh, to do that until much closer to the spring budget. We haven't announced a date for that yet. Um, but, you know, we won't find out what the latest forecasts are from the Office of Budget Responsibility to know whether we're in a position to do that uh, for some time. But we would like to bring down the tax burden in a way that is responsible if we're able to do so. But right now, our priority is to bring down inflation. We have really good news, 3.9% inflation, uh, beating market expectations by some way. That is because we have shown discipline in government. Uh, we've taken decisions that have supported the Bank of England in what they're trying to do with interest rates to bring down inflation. And it's still above target. We've still got more work to do. So that will remain our primary focus. And if inflation goes down, does it give you more headroom to cut taxes? Well, um, if debt interest payments go down, uh, then Potentially, that gives me more headroom, and I could use that in lots of different ways, but I would never use it in a way that compromised the battle against inflation. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt there with Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz. And at a lot of upheaval in Europe this past year, as Russia's war with Ukraine grinds on, and the economic situation there isn't so great either. And Denise, lawmakers in France have passed a toughened immigration bill, and the EU has reached a long-sought accord on the overall migration rules. This has a lot of people asking if it's all part of a shift to the right 
in Europe? And that's what Bloomberg's Caroline Hepker and Tom McKenzie ask University of Warwick Chancellor Baroness Catherine Ashton. There's always an election somewhere hmm. in Europe. You were always in a cycle. And it's very difficult to take a snapshot at any given moment. It will give you a false impression. So if you look now, we've got Poland with Donald Tusk. You couldn't get more European than the former president of the European Council. You've got the Netherlands with what will happen there. We don't quite know. You've got Slovakia, mm. but he's been in government twice before, so he's a known quantity. And of course, you've got Hungary with Viktor Orban, who has been the most consistently challenging member when it comes to, for example, support for Ukraine. You look across and it's very difficult to give a real clear picture that says it's moving right. It could be. Mm -hmm. We know that there are, you know, Italy. Uh, we know that there are issues about what happens. And so you don't Macron. detect anything unique about the situation around Fortress Europe and, and really the increased focus on immigration. I mean, that's one particular issue, but you don't detect a rightward move on that front? I think in terms of uh, immigration, mm -hmm. It is something that is stoking a move to the right and it's being used by the right to stoke the move to them. So it's an issue that people are concerned about. They're concerned about it because what they see is greater numbers of people on the move and with climate change, we're likely to see more people on the move. A lot of them will not come anywhere near Europe. Most of it's happening on continents, particularly on Africa. Um, but we will see people wanting to come to Europe. And that inevitably is an issue that political parties are going to have to show that they've thought about and they have a good response to. And in the EU, the big challenge is between southern states who are on the receiving end mm. of lots of people and under the current rules, people remain in the country in which they first arrive and the northern states and how far they're prepared to support the southern states both by taking people and by being willing to support and fund what's going to be necessary and you've seen all the machinations going on in brussels and we've seen the today. proximity between the uk prime minister rishi sunak and his counterpart in italy maloney and their attempts to forge pretty controversial plans around uh, dealing with, with the immigration uh, challenges. We've, we've seen immigrants come from Ukraine, of course, and broadly welcomed at the start of the conflict. You mentioned Viktor Orban, who's been standing in the way of this funding that's so desperately needed for Ukraine to pursue its counteroffensives against those Russian forces. What is your expectation? Do you think Europe essentially and ultimately gets this across the line? Is he grandstanding to unlock funds that Hungary is looking for itself? Is this a domestic political play by him? Ultimately, do you think the EU manages to get this across the line? I think they will. Um, I mean, Viktor Orban likes the benefits of membership very much, but doesn't like to do the stuff that actually would make a difference to others, either in the EU or outside the EU. And um, if necessary, what you will have is a, is an, a sort of outside of the EU structure, an agreement between the other countries to produce the funds for Ukraine, with the Commission supporting that. I mean, there are lots of ways around it. Europe and the institutional framework looks very rigid when you first look at it, but they're very good at coming up with ways of fixing things or changing things. And that was University of Warwick Chancellor Baroness Catherine Ashton with Bloomberg's Caroline Hepker and Tom McKenzie. And coming up... Rising U.S. consumer confidence, can it last? You're listening to Bloomberg Best. 
This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, we had that report out this past week showing a big jump in consumer confidence. And that comes from the conference board. And conference board chief economist Dana Peterson says the December number was very strong, but she also says our troubles might not be behind us. And uh, Denise Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Guy Johnson asked her why she's not 100% convinced that we can just skip off into the sunset. Consumers were much happier in December. We think it's a reflection of the fact that inflation's lower. And also they probably heard the news that the Fed's done hiking interest rates. And they probably also saw mortgage rates come off. So all that's really great news. And I think that showed up in, in the December consumer confidence measure. What about the expectations? I mean, that number was also quite good. However, there's still a lot of uncertainties for next year. Walk me through the expectation read. Sure. The expectations number jumped well above 80. And 80 is that threshold that usually signals recession ahead. Now, this is one number. And for much of the year, it's been below 80. So the thing is that consumers, when we ask them point blank, do you think there's going to be a recession? About two-thirds say there could be, but it's not as strong as it was in terms of that sentiment. So consumers are a little less worried, um, but I think that they should still be concerned. Their wages are not going to rise as much. All the excess savings from the stimulus checks is going to go away. Lots of consumers have debt, credit card debt, and also buy now, pay later types of loans. All those things are probably going to coalesce into softer growth in the first half. They've still got jobs, though. Yes, that's true. Many consumers are working. And when we ask CEOs of the biggest companies, what are you thinking? Many of them are not looking to let people go. Many of them are looking to hold on to workers. But we've definitely seen labor demand cool over the last year and businesses are starting to let some folks go. So I think that we are going to see cooler labor market again to marry with that uh, less strength, uh, reduced strength in consumer spending in the first half of 2024. Dana, what do you think consumers are most sensitive to? Sure. Well, we actually ask consumers for write-ins, and the write-ins still continue to complain about inflation, both food and energy. Their concerns about politics were a little less intense, but they are concerned about interest rates. Are we setting ourselves up for a a re-acceleration of inflation with these kinds of consumer numbers? Well, it's yes and no. If consumers continue to remain resilient, many of them are working, and they don't really care about how much debt they're racking up, and you could continue to see spending in that. You could see a re- uh, reacceleration of inflation. But the key thing is the Fed here. The Fed has choices. The Fed can keep interest rates where they are for a much longer period of time than markets are pricing in. We think they're probably not going to start cutting rates until the middle of next year and maybe only about 100 basis points at most. Markets are looking at uh, six rate cuts. That's probably excessive. And if the Fed sees inflation not calming the way it wants to, It'll just keep rates where they are right now. What's going to matter most next year? Is it going to be politics or is it going to be Powell? And and I'm really wondering, I know you said that they're not that interested or not that focused on politics yet, but we were talking to some geopolitical strategists who were like, once the nomination happens and if President Trump gets that, that's the most dangerous time for U.S. politics. How do you expect that to sort of overlay the confidence from consumers? Sure. I mean, usually consumers don't really pay a ton of attention to the election until October. We call that the October surprise. Anything surprising that happens in October impacts the election materially. And that's October of the election year, not this October that we just had. Um, But certainly the economy is going to play into it if prices are starting to pick up again or if there is a recession and consumers are disgruntled. um, That can matter. Dana, last question for me. Is the vibe session over 
the vibe session. Yeah, where it's like you're still doing stuff, but you feel really bad. There's actual no recession in the data, but the disconnect between the reality versus how people feel. Is that still happening? Consumers are still focused on inflation. And when you go to the grocery store, food prices are still high. When you buy a car, the insurance is high and rents are high. That's affecting people's sentiment. So even though they're going out and spending, they're spending is much less and they're still upset about inflation. And mm -hmm. that's still coming through. And that was Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board with Bloomberg Television's Alex Steele and Guy Johnson. And that's it for this hour of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 